How is that for an intro video? If you weren't curious before, you really are now. Uh, good morning. Welcome to Heartland. I want to say a special welcome to those of you watching or listening online. Obviously, those of you in the room. Uh, some of you guys listened last week. I can tell. Good that you're here. So glad that you're here. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, welcome to a brand new two-week teaching series entitled, What the Demons Believe, in which for this week and next, we will be talking about exactly that. How many of you have ever woken up and had the thought, I wonder what demons believe? My guess is, probably none of you, probably no, absolutely none of you have had that thought before. In fact, probably, we very rarely probably think about demons in general until October comes around and every movie trailer is the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. I hate October movie. It's just, hey kids, let's watch Bluey. Oh my gosh, it's demon. I hate it so much. Just cannot have the TV on. It's just really awful. And our, your kids watch YouTube and like the ads that come on, you're like, is there somebody on staff at YouTube that's a parent? To just go, this is terrible. This should not be. Uh, I'm 37. I don't want to watch the uh, movie title called The Last Exorcism, which there somehow was a sequel to. Explain that to me. I don't understand how there was a sequel to the movie called The Last Exorcism. Anyway. The truth is that uh, demons are very real. They're talked about a lot in Scripture. And if you're uncomfortable with me saying the word demons today, you're going to not have a real fun next half hour because we're going to talk about them a lot. Um, as a small disclaimer for the sake of today and for next week, um, there, we won't get into all aspects of angels or demons or spiritual warfare. Uh, it's an amazing subject. I really love talking about it. As I said, Scripture has a lot to say about it. Uh, but just for the sake of, of this series, there are some specific elements of demons that we're going to be focusing on, but in no way is this like an exhaustive discussion of spiritual warfare. But for the sake of today, I want to do a brief overview of demons so that we're all on the same page. As John read this scripture last week, the Apostle Paul once wrote to the church in Ephesus, he said, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. That's a pretty direct, poignant, clear, not a whole lot of wiggle room as far as what Paul is teaching us from Scripture, that we are battling against spiritual beings. And as John taught us last week, our human enemy is not our enemy. This is our enemy. So what are demons? Let's find out. So I'm going to walk through uh, what Scripture tells us. I'm not going to throw up every scriptural reference because it would take a long time, and, and I already have a lot of Scripture for today. So I'm just going to walk through what the Bible tells us about the spiritual world and what we uh, you know, can learn and understand and deduce from that. If at any point you have like questions or something seems unclear or you'd like to probe something further, uh, please reach out. I would love to talk about it more uh, with you, you know, offline or in person. Um, there are a ton of great resources out there for this kind of stuff. I am no expert, and there are many other much wiser women and men who have studied this for longer than I have that have different or, you know, more holistic opinions. So anyway, I'd love to talk about it more, uh, but I'm not going to list the scripture, but uh, you can trust me, and if you'd like a reference, I can give it to you later. Okay. I'm going to take a deep breath. Hang on. <clears throat> According to God's word, the being that we call Satan was originally named Lucifer. Lucifer was an angel, and the uh, name Lucifer means angel of light, which, side note, is no wonder that so often the temptations and lies of the devil seem so enticing because he is the angel of light. Not only was he an angel, but he was in charge of guarding the throne of God. 
He oversaw the throne of God. Just like people were created with specific gifts and purposes according to God's holy plan, angels were also created with different purposes that we read about in Scripture, such as messenger, guardian, or worshiper. Lucifer's purpose was overseeing the throne of God. Then at some point, he decided that he didn't want to guard the throne anymore. He wanted to be the one sitting on it. He wanted to be God. This was a little bit of a problem because there already was a God and there is only one God and it was not Lucifer. So he rebelled against God and the Lord threw him out of heaven to which there were a number of angels who also decided to join Lucifer in rebelling against God and these are what we call demons. In fact, Satan himself, as you can deduce from this, is himself simply a demon. He's not a super demon. He's not like an extra demon. He's not a bonus demon. He is simply a demon. He is just the leader of all the other demons. And this brings me to an important point, which is why I have my friend Whiteboard up here, and I want to show you. So often we tend to think of like God and Satan as equal enemies, yes? Uh, every good you know, thing has to have an enemy. Batman has to have the Joker. Superman has to have kryptonite. Taylor Swift has to have a healthy relationship. You know, those don't go together. That can't work together. Diets have M&Ms. You know what I'm saying? There's just like an enemy for everything. Uh, but the truth is that if we put God up here and Satan down here, Satan is on the same plane as a, a demon, as an angel. He's a fallen angel, okay? So he is, again, not a God, not God himself. He is in no way equal to God. And so this doesn't work, and Satan knows that. He can't target God in his, uh, uh, you know, hatred or wanting to be him himself. He knows that that's not a match, as we'll see in, in some scripture a little bit later. So the only tactic that Satan has is to target what God loves most, which is you and I. This is the tactic of Satan, of these dark spiritual beings that we read about a few moments before, is that they know they are not going to f defeat God. They're not even going to try because they have already failed. They've already been defeated and will be obliterated at the end of time. The only tactic they have is to hurt what God loves most, which is you and I, and so that's what they do. Spiritual warfare is not God and Satan battling it out in the heavenlies, and then you and I and angels and demons are just like caught in the collateral damage. That's not what it is at all. Instead, we become the focus of these dark spirits whose goal is to pull us as far away as they possibly can from God because they hate God because they want to be God. This is why Satan is called the father of lies, and these evil spirits will use any kind of twisted or blatant or subtle distortion of truth to pull us away from God, away from life, away from truth, away from the light. And while, yes, they do have this power to lie and try to influence and deceive us, the truth is that they are not real powerful in any way when it comes to the name of Jesus, when it comes to God himself. And this is one of my biggest pet peeves in all the world. Let me put a, hang on, climb on my soapbox real quick, just for a second here. I referenced it early with the, with the movie trailers in October. One of, my biggest pet peeve is how demonic forces are represented in Hollywood. Because it is the opposite of how they're talked about in the Bible. Like every time you see, and I can't watch them because they're just too scary and dumb, but anytime you see a movie, like a movie or trailer with de demonic forces in it, they're represented as so terrifying and so powerful, right? They're chucking beds across the room and there's things spinning on the wall and everybody's so terrified and you can't go in the room. And I don't know why in horror movies they walk like this. I've never walked this slow in my life. If there was something terrible, I'd be like, let's get it over with. I just wouldn't want to go see it. Anyway, 
But I hate how they're represented in Hollywood because, as we'll see in just a moment, in Scripture, they are just these, like, when, when faced with the power of God, they are these wimpy, pathetic wuss bags of nothingness. For real, that, like, whatever, in your, if I can ask you this morning, whether you're online or, or here, maybe you two played a terrible ad before church this morning. Write a letter. That's awful. If that happened, that's just the enemy, like, I don't want you to listen this morning, so, you know, he's dumb. Okay. Um, so, any, whatever co- uh, concept you might have in your mind of demons or their power or how they influence us based on how Hollywood or media has represented them, at least for the next few minutes, I'm going to ask you to set that aside and open yourselves up to how incredibly inaccurate and false that is. The best way I can think of describing the power that a demon has comes from a cartoon. Because a demon's uh, tactic is going to deceive us into fear. Fear is one of their absolute greatest tools, and they're going to try to get us there through something false. The more they can cause us to fear, the more powerful they seem, and the more they can pull us away from God's presence, which is the opposite of fear. As Timothy says, the Lord has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And the image that came to me, I don't know if you ever remember this from like old Tom and Jerry or Bugs Bunny cartoons, but you remember there's a character when they're like walking down an alley, and they see this shadow of this terrifying monster, and they flip out, and then like run the other way, and then out from the alley walks this like little mouse that ended up being this shadow. This was the only image I could find on the internet uh, to represent that, this kind of thing. You know, if you find a better one, send it to me. I've scoured Google for so long, and I can't find a better one. But this idea, we've seen this cartoon where, here, and here's why this is important, because the demons want you to think they're the shadow, but they're the mouse, okay? All throughout Scripture, anytime they, 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 people are afraid, it's because they are somehow deceived into thinking that these dark spiritual forces are more powerful than they are. They are not the shadow. They are not the monster. They are not terrifying. They are the mouse. But if they can lie to you and convince you that they have power, that they're terrifying, then they've got a foothold and can influence us and pull us away from the Lord. As I said, Jesus has already conquered Death and sin and darkness. Satan is already defeated and will be obliterated at the end of time. He's just trying to take as many people down with him as he possibly can. But as the spiritual darkness we battle against tries to pull us away from God, those of us who follow Jesus, who call Jesus our Lord, have the power of God behind us. As Jesus said, moments before leaving earth, ascending into heaven, In Matthew 28, he says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And he goes on later to say, preach the gospel. He also specifies cast out demons. The word therefore is real important. There's a super cheesy uh, thing to remember from Bible college, which is in the Bible, if you see the word therefore, go back and figure out what it's there for. (laughs) Drum. Oh, there's nobody on the drums. Okay. Kittings. I was hoping for that. That didn't happen. Yeah, it's very silly. But this one word shows us that Paul is linking, or Jesus is linking, he has all the authority, and because of all that authority that we are imparted with with the Holy Spirit, those of us who would say that we follow Jesus, we can then go forth and battle against demons and preach the gospel and heal in Jesus' name. So here's how this plays out. It's very important for any of those followers of Jesus to understand this concept is this, this equation, the power of God plus you equals the power of God. And it's not this dramatic Hollywood, 
um, oh my gosh, the demon has so much power, we have to have all the right, you know, kind of water and this scripture and hold the thing out here and oh, they're chucking people across the room. And uh, that is not in any way, again, we'll see momentarily uh, of what the power that demons have. They're just the shadow. Or they're, excuse me, they're just the mouse, even though they want us to think they're the shadow. And it does not have to be this intense, dramatic thing. In fact, just this past week, I had this wonderful opportunity. A friend of mine had just moved into uh, a new place where they were living, and they just kind of had this sense there was like some spiritual darkness going on, you know, based on, I don't know, whatever, previous owners or whatever. And they started to just say, can you just come pray over this, the, you know, this place where I live? And just, we, I just want to pray over it, invite God's spirit, and cast out anything. And we did. And it was so wonderful. It was not dramatic. There was no chucking across the room, no spinning of anything. We just sat, and we read the Bible, and we, you know, sensed the Lord speaking some things to us, and then we went and anointed some of the doorways with the cross and prayed God's presence to fill that area. And it was so incredible. It was like this wonderful experience. And I was like, where's Hollywood now? This would have been such a great thing to film. And I'm like, oh, well, that wouldn't have sold a lot of tickets. It was pretty uneventful. But it was wonderful. Okay, there's a quick overview of Demons. Man, there is so much more we could talk about. We'll do a series someday, not right now. Uh, That's just general overview. Again, if there's more that you'd like to discuss or process, I would love to do that with you. So please uh, shoot me a line and we can do that. And now with that in place... Onto what the demons believe, which we've all been not wondering. Uh, a few months ago, I was uh, just driving in my car, driving very safely, <laughs> and uh, I thought, I thought the scripture just came to mind, totally out of the blue. I'd heard it many, many times before, but it just popped into my head, and, I, and I've always remembered, and I thought about it. It's from uh, the book of James, where James writes to the early church. He says, uh, you say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God, Then just sarcasm alert. He goes, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. I've read this many times before. Not only do I love the sarcasm in this. Those of you that ever thought the Bible's funny, it's real funny. Love the sarcasm. But the point he makes is really poignant. That he is writing the early church going, if this is your claim to salvation, that you believe in God, hey, that ain't nothing because the demons of hell share this belief with you. Then I found myself thinking, still driving safely, what else do the demons believe? I mean, this is a real direct statement about what the fallen angels from heaven, the demons of hell, the followers of Lucifer, this is a really clear statement about a belief that they adhere to. Does the Bible say anything more blatantly or that we can deduce about what the demons believe? And the answer is no. Let's close. No, I'm kidding. The answer is yes. In fact, there were five specific things as I just dove into this study of like, I want to figure out everything the demons might believe. This is one real clear one. Maybe there's other. I dove into this study and wanted to try to figure out if there was anything else we could surmise that the demons believe. And I came up, came up with five things. There are five things that we are either blatantly told or can deduce uh, from Scripture that demons believe that i like to share with you this morning. Number one, as we just saw, the demons believe in God. James says real clear that, that demons believe in God, the one true God, and they tremble in fear because they're just giant pathetic wussbags. Number two, the demons also believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Not that he was a great teacher or a great prophet. They believe he was the Son of God. Here's a couple examples in Mark 3, uh, verse 10. Uh, talking about Jesus, he, healed, he had healed many people that day, so all the sick people eagerly push, push forward and to touch him. And whenever those possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him, the spirits would throw them to the ground in front of him, shrieking, you are the son of God. 
Mark 5, verse 7 and 8. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. See how wimpy they are? This is what demons are. They, they're, they're not like, oh, I'm powerful. They're like, oh, please don't hurt me, Lord. That's the voice that we should replace in all Hollywood movies. For Jesus has already said to the spirit, come out, you evil spirit. So just real clear, like they're terrified of the power of Jesus. And the first thing out of their mouth is they're declaring their belief that Jesus is the son of the most high God. Number three. Again, this is a little bit tied in with number two, but number three, the demons believe and know firsthand that Jesus is powerful. Uh, back to Book of Mark, actually in chapter one. It says, suddenly a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. These demons are preaching the gospel, man. But Jesus reprimanded him, saying, Be quiet, come out of the man, he ordered. At that, the evil spirit screamed, threw the man into a convulsion, and then came out of him. The demons are very aware that Jesus is powerful. Two more. Number four, uh, the demons believe that Jesus died. Now, there is not a scriptural passage that states this blatantly, but from everything that I've studied and read in Scripture, we can deduce that demons existing in the spiritual world saw Jesus' death, might have even, probably even saw it as a victory, thinking that in some way they had won. They would have been able to see or sense that Jesus himself became sin, everything that represented everything they wanted Jesus to become, which is why Satan tempted him in the desert to sin. Suddenly they witnessed him become sin incarnate and for the first time and only time in history be separated from the Heavenly Father so that we would never have to be. So demons believe he died. And fifth and final one, the demons believe they know that Jesus rose from the dead. There's such an incredible account uh, from Acts 16. There was a woman possessed by an evil spirit following Paul around, just like shouting stuff until he got annoyed and cast the spirit out. But listen to what she was shouting. This is like mind-boggling. Uh, Acts 16, 17, and 18. said, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God and they have come to tell you how to be saved. Again, demons just preaching the gospel. <laughs> Imagine Paul's like, thank you, demon. Yeah, I am. Come here, folks. You want to be saved? Let's do that. This went on day after day until Paul was, got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and instantly it left her. Even this demon himself possessing this woman was so terrified, it was literally shouting the gospel message that Paul was coming to tell people how to be saved because they knew Jesus had risen from the dead and conquered death and sin forever. So I completed this study and I sat back in my desk and looked at this list. Five really key foundational beliefs, I would say, of the Christian faith that we also share with the demons of hell. To which I then thought of the question that was the inspiration for this series and what I'd like to talk about in the time we have remaining. If the demons believe these five things... What's the difference between a demon and a Christian? I don't know about you, but I've talked to many, many people throughout my life and my time in ministry who, when asked about their faith or whether they were a Christian, responded with something to the effect of like, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe in God. I believe God, believe in God all my life. Yeah, I've always believed in Jesus. I, I totally believe that he was the son of God. I believe that he died and that he rose from the dead. Yeah, I believe all that. 
and that's it. That's great. I, let me be clear. There's nothing wrong with that belief. In fact, as I said, those are foundational beliefs for those of us following Jesus. For the Christian faith, we have to believe those five things because they're very, very important. And scripture is really, really clear that what we believe plays a significant role in our lives, in our salvation. Paul in the book of Romans 10.9 says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John 3.16, most famous passage in all of scripture. Jesus says, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son that, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What we believe is very, very important. We are not talking about what the demons believe because what they believe is bad, because what they believe is true, and they are beliefs that we as followers of Jesus should share in. The reason we're talking about what the demons believe is because the question is, what more is there to a follower of Christ? If the demons of hell believe these five things and are not going to spend eternity in God's presence, there has to be something more, something very important in addition to these five beliefs when it comes to being a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And it is those things we're going to talk about today and next week. I believe there are two key differences. Two differences that quite literally could be the difference between life and death, between what the demons believe and a true disciple follower of Jesus. We're going to talk about uh, thing number one this week and thing number one next week. So you have to come back. Sorry. Uh, to get to our first difference, uh, I want to talk about something we experience every single day, but rarely uh, pay attention to, which is the fine print. I don't know when I got hooked on this, but I really like finding the fine print like in commercials or advertisements because they're really funny. Uh, one of them, <laughs> uh, if you watch a car commercial um, and then they'll say something like best in its class. Have you ever heard that, the, that term, the, the best in its class? If you do a little research, sometimes finding that specific class for that car, which is like, you know, mid-sized two-door sport with a spoiler, all that, that, that. sometimes that's the only car in the class. Or there's like two. So you hear that and you're like, wow, it beat out that one. Good for it. You know what I'm saying? So the fine print, really important. If you also, when the car commercials, the commercials, they show it and it looks like such an amazing car. And then they'll be like, only $39.99. And you look at the bottom, it's like, as shown, $65,000. You're like, oh my gosh, okay, that's different. I want that car. But that, yeah, fine print, really important. Um, hiring signs are real important. Those of you looking for a job, they'll be like, hiring, $15 an hour. And right next to it, it says, up to? Real important. Walk in, they're like, we'll give you six bucks an hour. And you're like, the sign says, they're like, up to. We just promised to not go over that amount in what we're going to pay you. Um, any kind of technology commercial, you know, iPhone or smartphones, computers, every single one, they show it doing all this unbelievable stuff with the flip and the thing and the touchscreen turns into a laptop, turns into a treadmill, like all this thing that the screen does. If you look at the bottom to fine print, it says screen sequence simulated. So it cannot do what it's doing, or at least not nearly as fast as they're showing in the commercial. Nothing is true. Everything's a lie. That's what I'm teaching us right now. 
One of the best stories about fine print, it's like legendary, but you've heard about like the, the big rock bands that would tour like in the 60s and 70s and 80s. There was the joke that they had something in their contract that said no brown M&Ms in the green room. You guys ever heard this? That this is like a thing. So I always thought like, who are these just prima donnas going around? Like the M&Ms all taste the same. I don't care what y'all say. They taste the same. They just look, why do they care so much that there's not brown M&Ms? I found this out. This is so true. Uh, Van Halen was one of the first, this is total bunny trail. So this might be the only thing you remember but you're welcome. Uh, uh, Van Halen was one of the first bands to do this. And because their show was so elaborate, there were like pyrotechnics and all the speakers and like, you know, stuff that they did instrument-wise and sound-wise, um, there was a lot of like safety risk in the different venues that they would go that would have to set up. And so what they would do is the manager, when they would send this huge contract over to the venues for them to sign, they would put these little things in fine print, like way in the bottom, mixed in with all the other stuff about no brown M&Ms in the green room, so that if they showed up and the band walked in the green room and there were brown M&Ms, they knew that the venue had not read through the entire contract and they needed to do a safety check to make sure that everything was going to be okay. See, Van Halen, they were good guys, okay? They're not prima donnas. They know what they're doing. Sometimes fine print doesn't seem necessary, uh, but apparently is. This is true. This is from Amazon's website in section 57-10. In their terms of service about acceptable safe use for Lombard material, they give a clause about a zombie apocalypse. It says, however, this restriction will not apply in the event of the occurrence certified by the United States Center for Disease Control or successor body of a widespread viral infection transmitted via bites or contact with bodily fluid that causes human corpses to reanimate and seek to consume living human flesh, blood, brain, or nerve tissue and is likely to result in the fall of organized civilization. <laughs> Amazon is on top of it. Man, they know what's going on. I think it'd be funny in the zombie apocalypse, the guy's trying to call customer service. My lumber, and they're like, sir, have you read 57 dash dot one? This one was funny too. Uh, Tumblr, I know Tumblr's an old, it was like this uh, photo app, photo application, but they have, a, they have an age restriction, and just the way they wrote it made me laugh. Uh, they said, you have to be at least 13 years old to use Tumblr. We're serious. It's a hard rule based on U.S. federal and state legislation. But I'm like 12.9 years old, you plead. Nope, sorry. If you're younger than 13, don't use Tumblr. Ask your parents for a PlayStation 4 or try books. <laughs> Oh, Tumblr, man. Good parents. There's good parents at Tumblr. Uh, sometimes fine print is just really funny. I just brought some photos I'd like to share. This first one is a Chipotle coupon. I'll read it in case you can't read it. Uh, it says, offer valid only at participating locations, which in this case means all locations, not to be combined with other offers or somehow cleverly duplicated. Limit one card per person. Please present this card to the cashier, but don't be surprised when they keep it. Cash value, one hundredth of a cent, which is pretty much nothing. This is the fine print. Why are you still reading this? Really, this is getting silly. Go eat. <laughs> Oh, that's a good one. Another one. Here's another one. Offering a free meal to anyone over 80 years old. What's that asterisk? If accompanied by both parents. <laughs> Those poor 85-year-olds walking in, somebody has to be like, nope, you don't get a free meal because we put the fine print. Uh, this smoothie bag made me laugh. Hopefully you've not bought this one. A blueberry banana smoothie mix with flaxseed must add blueberries and banana. So that's just a bag of flaxseed is what that is. That's literally what that is. And then this final one, make sure you re keep reading. Look at this shirt. Oh, 100% silk feeling fabric. <laughs> Polyester. Yeah. So if you stopped reading after silk, you're like, this must be on sale. Nope. It's silk feeling polyester. Okay. There's some fine print. Uh, go, now, please be very careful when you're buying products. Go read the fine print. 
Uh, the first very important difference between what the demons believe and a true follower of Jesus is simply this, receiving Jesus' gift of salvation. That's it. <laughs> this requires that we first admit that we are sinners. We need to own the fact that we have done things against the way that God has created us to live, that he has commanded us to live, that we are in need of forgiveness, and then all we simply have to do is receive the forgiveness that Jesus already is paid for and is offering. And even better news, there's no fine print. It seems ridiculously simple to simply say we just have to receive this gift, but that's literally all it is. And unfortunately, throughout history, too many people and groups throughout the years claiming to be Christians have perpetuated this idea that there is fine print attached to what this means. That there are certain expectations or things that we need to adhere to or follow through in order to be worthy or to receive the gift of salvation from Jesus. They've said things that following your Jesus requires that we wear certain clothes requires declaring a contractual allegiance to an organization or list of specific beliefs. That following Jesus requires a certain level of financial giving or personal time committed to a person, a place, or a group. More often than not, the fine print are things that we cannot do. So being a follower of Jesus means that we cannot dance or play cards or watch any movie above PG or listen to any music not produced by a Christian label. And the list, I could be here for hours with the fine print list of how so many people and organizations have presented the grace of Jesus saying, it's free, asterisks, here's all the things that you need to do in order to receive that. And I'm here to tell you, there is no fine print in scripture when it comes to the salvation, the gift, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Not one asterisk, not one line, not one extra thing like what's the catch, what's the hook, what's the bait and switch. There is nothing. It is a gift from your heavenly Father to you. And scripture could not be more clear on this. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. He could have just said gift. He wanted to reemphasize this is a free gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 2.9, Paul says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. He's like, any fine print you're following through on means nil. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. And the truth of any good gift is it's really only a good gift once it's received. I remember, this is a very silly story, but um, Lindsay and I were on vacation a whole bunch of years ago, and we've decided our couple's sport is snorkeling. I don't know if that's considered a sport, but it's really like, it's the only thing that we like can and love doing together, so we, that's our couple's sport, so we snorkel. And so we went with this group, which part of the fine print, I should have read, part of the fine print was you had to wear a life vest and like stay in this formation. I don't know about you, when I snorkel, I like to like dive down and feel like I'm a dolphin, you know, and like get close and see this coral. I'm not touching, I'm not ruining the ecosystem, but I just like to get close and do it. So I told Lindsay, I was like, I think, I think I'm gonna break the rules. So we were all swimming in the group, and I kind of hung back like in the group, like I was in the back of the group. And then what I would do is I would very, I was real good at this, I would subtly unhook my life vest 
and pretend like I'm floating, like, hey, leader, I'm still here. And then when everybody was kind of moving, I'd slip out of it seamlessly and dive down. And then I'd find pretty shells for Ava and Phoenix. I'd just be like, this is a pretty shell. And then I'd come back up and slip it back on. Nobody could tell. It was pretty amazing. Uh, the documentary's coming out on Hulu next month, so you can check that out. <laughs> there was one time, though, where I saw this beautiful white shell, like, like big old beautiful white shell kind of in this, in this crevice. And I was like, oh, man, I'm so stoked to get this, so I'm going to do it. So I waited the thing, slipped out, dove down. And as I reached my hand into the crevice to grab the shell, the head of a green moray eel came out and was like, that's my shell. And I don't know how it didn't bite me, but I like jerked my hand back and swam up, and I was like, this is why you followed the rules. So, <laughs> so I, I did not do that again, because I understood. I came up to my instructor. I don't know why you guys didn't let me <laughs> swim below the surface. I can't believe it didn't bite me. I was all up in it. Yeah, anyway, okay, it didn't bite me. But I was thinking, so I came home with all these beautiful shells and gave them to, to Ava and Fee, and they were both like so excited. So, you know, I got to tell them this story. And I was thinking, had I brought these home and like told Ava this story, like, baby, I put my hand in this eel, like almost got me. I was risking my fingers for your shells. It was really amazing. Um, and had I given them to her and she'd been like, no, I don't really want them. That would have hurt. This gift that I had prepared, and as small and silly as it was, I had this anticipation, this excitement about my daughter receiving this gift, and had she not received it, then I would have felt like it's not a gift anymore. It just was wasted. And herein lies actually another key difference between the fallen angels of heaven and us, is that God does not give demons salvation. He offers it to us, his most prized possession, the pinnacle of his creation for free, but he doesn't offer it to the demons. Second Peter 2.4 says, For God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness where they are being held until the day of judgment. But we are called God's masterpiece. In Ephesians 2, 9 and 10, I just read this scripture moments ago. Here's the rest of it. It says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Next sentence, he says, for we are God's masterpiece. Everything else was a warm-up. <laughs> he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. This is why the story of Scripture from front to back is threaded by the relentless pursuit of God desperately wanting to be with his children. So much so that he took out the wrath of death and sin, which we read about in Romans moments ago, on his own son. That Jesus willingly, lovingly stepped into that death out of his love for us and paid for it. It is done. It is conquer conquered. He became sin incarnate as the demons are aware of. He died for our sins and now simply says, I have the power to forgive because I took it all on and all you have to do is receive it. No fine print. And just to conclude today, I want to show you how much God's heart is in this gift. <clears throat> I've talked about this before, uh, th this particular passage, and I just want to make clear, this is, this is how I interpret it. This is what I believe uh, this passage of Scripture is saying. Uh, there are, we can't know for sure, obviously, be, until we get to talk to Jesus face-to-face, -face, and there are other people who interpret this a little bit differently. This is how I interpret it, and I believe shows us a picture of God's heart, uh, which is the reason that Jesus cried. So one time in Scripture, we are told that Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in all of Scripture, so congratulations. You just memorized the Bible verse, that Jesus wept. 
And I want to propose the idea that uh, from the very moment this account started, Jesus was anticipating the miracle he was about to do, which was raise a, per- a guy named Lazarus from the dead. Okay? It was not a surprise to him. It wasn't a last-minute audible that he called. It wasn't an impulse by at the register. He knew this is what he was going to do, and I'll show you the evidence for that. Um, in John 11, when the account starts, Jesus is told that Lazarus is sick, He said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. A few verses later, he said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. A few verses later, John 11, 14, He told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Come, let us go see him. Again, I just get this idea that Jesus is like pumped up. He's anticipating what he's about to go do, and he's so geeked out about it because of how much glory it's going to bring to God. He shows up offering life. But when he gets there, nobody got it. When he gets there, uh, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Boom, laid it all out there. There it is. She still didn't get it. She said, yes, he will rise when everyone else rises on that last day. Again, a few verses later, Mary arrived and saw Jesus. She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus showed up literally offering life, and everybody missed it. And in John eleven thirty two, 32, it says, When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? Yes, they told him, Lord, come and see. And it says, Then Jesus wept. I believe Jesus wept because he came offering life and nobody received it. He was so anticipatory, excited, thrilled to present true life from God the Heavenly Father to his children who he loved so much and everybody missed it. All they saw was death and what was right in front of him and because of that it broke his heart and he cried. The thing that makes God weep is when we simply don't receive the gift that he is offering us. And so before we walk out these doors or turn off our laptops or computers, I want to give us all of us an opportunity to just sit with God for a few minutes. Um, I want to give us the opportunity, maybe for the first time or maybe for the first time with new understanding of what this means to receive this gift. Again, maybe in looking at the, the five things that it's clear that the demons of hell believe, understanding there's this step further to go, yes, I believe all that, but more importantly, Lord, I receive your gift of salvation. If that's a step that you have never taken or feel the prompting or need to take this morning, I just want to give you a few moments to do that. So Brent is going to lead us in a song, and this, this, these few minutes is just for you and the Lord. Um, if you want to sit, read the lyrics, sing along, open scripture, journal, pray with somebody, whatever this, the, whatever this moment needs to be for you, this is a moment knowing that Jesus has been standing with this open gift of forgiveness and salvation since he rose from the dead, and all we have to do is receive it. No fine print, no strings attached.